Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and interesting people about unlocking the mysteries of human behavior. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Paul Bloom. If you are hearing this without first listening to part one, no, you can do that. This episode can stand on its own, but there may be a few references that you may not get. There might be some background that we talk to. So it might be good. Might be good to just stop this right now and go listen to part one. However, if you want to be a nonconformist and just get some of that meaty topic that we're going to discuss in this episode, all me by all means, go ahead, go, just listen, just, just keep listening. Well, okay, but just as a quick <laughs> recap, in episode one, we did talk about the history of psychology and the impact of some of the most famous contributors to the field, like Freud and you know and. Uh, And how Skinner really didn't have an influence. Yeah, minimal impact. But in this episode, I just want to say that in this episode, we're going to focus on going to explore how Paul's latest book came about. We're going to talk about the concept of selfish versus altruistic behaviors and their root causes. And we're going to talk about the nature versus nurture debate in a really, really cool way. We might even settle it. It's possible. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. We we talk a little bit about universals versus individual, you know, in terms of, you know, concepts and ideas and actions. Language, oh, fun, fun conversation about language. And what makes a good life? See, now, if just for that, Last comment there, what makes a good life? You should listen. You got to listen to understand what makes a good life because this can, this episode could change your life, folks. There you go. So, listen to it. what makes a good life and you can go forward having the happiest, best life you could ever have. So pretty robust episode, if I say so myself. Okay, so we won't belabor the introduction. Let's just ask our listeners to sit back with that second glass of insight and continue to enjoy our conversation with Paul Bloom. Listeners, we are talking with Paul Bloom about his new book, Psych, the story of the human mind. And uh, it is just a fascinating. First off, I want to get a little bit more into the book because we've been talking some big (laughs) esoteric questions here. But can you tell us a little bit about, you talked a little bit at the beginning about how the book is structured, but you have some really, you know, the ape that speaks, uh, hearts and minds. You kind of bring in a whole variety as we talked about. This covers a lot of ground. How did you start and kind of build the book? And what is the, what are you trying to accomplish with it? Yeah. I love teaching psychology. And and I, I've taught it in classes, taught at Yale, University of Toronto. I have an online course on Coursera where we teach psychology and has like a million, over a million students subscribe right now. But there are limits to what you could do in a class. Just, just, just basically the limits of time and the limits of detail. So I wanted to tell the whole story. And I wanted to make it the equivalent of have everything you, you would get from a good textbook. But also in a way that, I mean, I hate textbooks. I hate reading them. <laughs> I, 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 you couldn't pay me to write them. So I want it to be the kind of thing where, you know, you, you could sit down and read while you're waiting at a bar for your date to come by, you know, and maybe if I do it right, you know, like you'll let your date come by and you'll just keep on reading, and keep, keep, keep your head down and everything. My, my fun, I my think your date hopes. might just walk by if they see you reading Psych. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be true, the that's true. Thing, my, my Ooh, fun, that's I don't want to go there. So that's was my my fondest hope is that people prefer my book over over true relationships. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things about psychology is that I, you can't stay in your own lane. So I don't know what it's like to write a book about biochemistry, or you know, or French architecture, but at least for this field, psychology slumps into so many other things. So when I talk about philosophy about consciousness. I'm knee-deep into philosophy and anthropology and other fields. In the brain connects to neuroscience, of course. Language connects to linguistics. Reasoning connects to game theory and behavioral economics and so on and so forth. Individual differences cuts into behavioral genetics as well as studies about human environments and and some degree studies of, of history and sociology. And for me, this is fun. But... But if somebody says, you know, oh, I, I read your book on psychology and was 
distress to find so much of other disciplines. And I'd say, well, that's that's what psychology is. You talk in the book about uh, evolution of uh, our, some of our traits and that the selfish variant really should be the thing that gets passed on. And yet these beliefs and behaviors around kindness and love and gratitude and friendships that really don't seem to fit with selfishness keep coming back, <laughs> keep, keep yeah. hitting the, yeah. they, they keep making the top 40. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's a set of things about the mind that are these great mysteries that people people slam away from on. One is how can a physical thing like a brain be intelligent? And that's actually one we've licked. We have computers. We know, we know it can be done. We know you can wire up physical things in such a way that they could play chess and carry on conversations and navigate through space. And we also know how neurons in the brain can do these sort of computations. There's a lot to be done, but we know how physical things to be conscious, could be uh, intelligent. Then there's consciousness. How can physical things be conscious? That's a killer. <laughs> that's a real killer. And that's something which we're struggling on. We've learned a lot about consciousness. I don't think we know that answer to that one. Then there's the one you raised, which is how can a creature that evolved through natural selection Darwinian natural selection, which simply works on, on, you know, survival and reproduction, lead to entities like us who are pretty nice in some ways, who, who help out. And, you know, I know some people think it can't be done. They think the existence of our niceness means we must, God must intervene and put something special into our souls. Because otherwise, how do you explain our niceness? I think there are better answers. I think a close look at how evolution works Give some surprises. So, for instance, anybody who thinks evolution is it shapes people to be purely selfish, I think, and I think often, often Ayn Rand would talk that way. Say the most natural biological is pure selfishness. That's not how biology works. Biology works on survival and reproduction. So, at minimum, I should care about myself, but I should also care about my kin, my children, my grandchildren, my cousins, my aunts, my my my, my uncles. You have a range of it. Natural selection actually does something very cool, which is it creates animals for whom the distinction between self and other is just a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. Now, that's part of it. That's what they call kin selection, being kind to your kin. Then there's reciprocal altruism, this stuff, lovely stuff of game theory and so on. And the idea is maybe you and I are not related. But if I help you, maybe there's um, maybe you capture some big game and we need to drag it back to camp, but you can't do it by yourself, so I do it with you. And then after that, you sh- agree to share with me what you found. Suppose you and I have, have, have kids together, and it's such a big deal raising kids, so when I'm sick, you raise my kids, and when you're sick, I raise yours. We, there's mutual benefit to this, and animals, including humans, arise from that. And I think stuff like that is a partial answer to the mystery you raised about the origin of kindness, then there's real, then there's the real tough stuff. I bet among the four of us at different times have given to charities or help people in faraway lands. Maybe some of us abstain from eating meat. Maybe we care about global warming. We all these things that might have no immediate consequence to us or those we love or those who are friends, but we we have a, an abstract sense of kindness. And that's really cool. And I think there the story gets more complicated. I think the story is that evolution has bequeathed us not only with these sort of moral instincts, but also with, with an intelligence. And we could apply these intelligence to take us places we would have never gone before. Yeah. In the book, I'm going to quote you here. It says, there, there's a rich irony here. It turns out that the best explanation of our finest instincts, love, gratitude, friendship, and esteem, can only persist if we have feelings such as anger and resentment. And I found that that was just I, it, when I thought yeah. about that, it's really great. And a, it brings me back to the sweet spot, right? The yeah. I, you know, what you talk about within that book. But can you expand on that? And just kind of, yeah, because I think it's just such an interesting concept that we can't have good without maybe some of this other aspect going on. It it, it is it is a deep insight. I could say, mm-hmm. I could brag about it because it's not mine. I think I think you find <laughs> it in the purest form by, in, in Adam Smith but also by many evolutionary theorists afterwards. And the idea is this. Suppose we're in a community. You could imagine a community in a hunter-gathered community. Imagine we live in a house together. And, uh, and we all do our cleaning, and we all, you know, we all do our cleaning and our chores. And then a mutant comes in. Suppose I'm the mutant. I, I have played the mutant once in my life in graduate school. And I like having a clean house. I benefit from the clean house. I don't do any cleaning myself. I leave my food out. 
and so on. Well, this is not a good setup. Each of the three of you think you're at a disadvantage relative to me, who has a lot more fun and a lot more time. So you stop cleaning. And sooner or later, it all goes to hell. And so what do we do? That's a metaphor for real life. As soon as somebody comes in who takes the benefit, who gives his kids for other people to watch, but doesn't watch other people's kids, who eats the big game when it comes in, but doesn't help hunt, everything falls apart because that person has an advantage. The twist then is another thing that has evolved, and this is with both humans and non-humans, is if you can have some way to make the bastard pay, (laughs) some degree where you shun me, you beat up on me, you do something to me that hurts, all of a sudden it's no longer in my interest to be a free rider. And so all sorts of animals work that way. There's these clever naturalistic experiments where you, you know, vampire bats drop into a cave and they fill their mouths up with blood because they've been to a horse or something. And then they drop droplets of blood into everybody in the cave. Very cooperative. So what you do is you get a vampire bat, you keep him from giving blood to the other people in the cave. They're all looking at him like, dude, you just <laughs> you have all this blood in your mouth. We're really hungry. Uh, what are you doing? And then the next day, when they bring blood, they shun the first one and oh start. And humans, humans do that too. Try being the guy who never buys the round when you're when in the bar. And sooner or later, your friends will twig on and you won't get invited anymore. Yeah. Or, or they will pointedly bring beer to the table, but not for you. Yeah. Yeah. We monitor everything. And that's these are like toy examples. But in general, without some urge to say, to say, hey, you're not doing your share. We don't like you. Kindness couldn't evolve. So in the book, you also address the nature versus nurture question. And it, it's interesting to me that, you know, we've we've talked about this with other guests, other researchers, and there's sort of this, God, is there still actually a question? Like did, when you when you're teaching this, yeah. is there sort of a head scratching moment? Like, oh, we have no idea. No, uh, do you really feel like you're answering the question nature versus nurture in class? And and, may, and maybe and of course you should weigh in for our listeners to to let them know yeah. your, your thoughts so about this. The nature versus nurture question is how much of what we are. Is, um, is, is due to our genes, uh, what we start off with, and how much is due to our experience. And there's a reflexive claim some people make, that, oh, we don't talk about that question anymore. It's all interaction. Uh, there's no nature-nurture problem. But if you think about it, that's, that can't be right. <laughs> um, people, people walk into class and they have different color eyes. Mm-hmm. And putting aside contact lenses, that's kind of nature. They got it from their parents. They come in and they know um, English. Well, that's pretty much nurture. You don't know English unless you heard, you heard English. Now, a lot of things are combinations. You see the power of nature. You see the power of nurture. But I think these are two different forces, and one can entangle them. And one can even, when it comes to individual differences, you could do the math to, to entangle them pretty carefully. So I could predict how tall each one of you is if I know how tall your biological mother and biological father is, even if they didn't raise you. It's not 100%. It's nowhere near 100%, actually. But it's a good guess. Very tall people have very tall children. So we can do the math and figure out what percentage of the variance in height among people is due to this biological factor. And then the rest of it is due to the variance that you get due to to random, random chance, to how much you eat, to, to what you do to your body, and so on. And it's true for other things, too. I can guess pretty well how introverted you are, how many years of school you will go through, how aggressive you are by testing your biological parents on those traits, even if they never raise you. Mm-hmm. Because it's terrible. And call that nature. The rest is nurture. And in some cases, there's a lot of nature and a little bit of nurture. In some cases, there's a little bit of nature and, and, and a lot of nurture. And so that's the, the study of individual differences works that way. And I don't think you get anywhere by, by putting yourself in the bizarre position of um, denying that some things come from the environment and some things don't. Yeah. I mean, I know the plot of all the John Wick movies. To deny that that's nurture 
to say, oh, no, and that's, that's nature in some way. And this is not nature. It's nature that I have the capacity to go to movies and whatever. But, but the knowledge itself has a specific origin. I could tell you exactly when I picked up the knowledge for all of this. On the other hand, uh, my crawling behavior, the color of my eyes, a lot of that's just, just nature. Yeah. And just the, I, I learned from John Wick, you just don't mess with people's dogs. That's what I'm just going to say from there. You <laughs> yeah. just don't mess with people's dogs. That's a bit of knowledge you were not born with. I was not born with and, that and knowledge. I learned it. that knowledge from, from the John Wick movies. There you go. In the book, you have you have a section on differences. So you started talking about these yeah. differences, right? And you state, and I, I love this line as well. You say, only scientists thinking like scientists care about universals. Most of the time, we are interested in how individuals are different. Um, and then you bring up an interesting from, uh, story from Noam uh, regarding frogs to demonstrate this. Yeah. So can you elaborate on, A, that story for our listeners, and then just on the concept in general? Yeah. So I see this in my own life. My own research is about universals. I'm, I'm interested in morality, why we think about morality one way or another, general views, general ideas uh, about how we think about identity, what we like. I'm sensitive to differences but I don't really care that much why one person's like one way or like one person's another way. But people care. <laughs> people care. You know, the way I put it is if I told uh, if I told my friend, oh, I'm going to fix you up with somebody. Yeah. And my friend says, oh, you know, what's she like? And I say, well, you know, she has a neocortex and a, a, a medulla. <laughs> she um, When she gets very hungry, no food, uh, she gets hungry and wants to eat. If you, um, she speaks using nouns and verbs. And she's like, no, I don't care. Tell me what makes her, her. And the Chomsky line is that uh-huh. frogs, if, um, if, if they could think about such things, wouldn't run around saying, I wonder what we all have in common. It's like, what makes this frog different from that frog? Yeah. Okay. So we're obsessed with differences because we go in the world and we interact with all sorts of people and I got to know whether if I'm interacting with somebody, are they going to be nice or are they going to be a jerk? Mm. I got to, I got, sometimes we select people. Who do I want to date? Who do I want to hire? Who do I want to, you know, there's, do, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping onto a bus. Do I sit there or do I sit there? Yeah. And you, we want to figure out differences. And so a lot of psychologists are interested in what makes people psychologically different and in different ways we could be psychologically different, you know, and, and there, there are many ways. Most men are sexually attracted primarily to women. Most women sexually attracted primarily to men. This is the biggest sex difference there is. But I don't need to tell anybody in this world, there are a lot of exceptions. A lot of men are turned on by, by men, a lot of women by, by women, a lot of men by both, a lot of women by both. And some people have sexual interests that don't fall into any of these simple categories. People see themselves as male or female, but sometimes they see themselves as bi. Or they see themselves in a different way. Some people are, um, take a funny distinction. Um, I'm married to um, to somebody who's, who the term maximizer applies, where yeah. she just has to get <laughs> get the best and everything. This is why she married me. Because you're a satisficer? <laughs> I'm a satisficer. Because no. right. he maximized uh, her, her you know, opportunity. <laughs> there you go. The, the point of the punchline is she waited for the very best person until she found, until, until oh, she found me. Oh, I totally, she, I, sorry. The totally point, the point of, uh, she will explain to me she's not always a maximizer. And sometimes she's got to choose, choose in a hurry. <laughs> but she's a, you know, she, she stares at the menu and finds the best meal. I stare at the menu and say, I'll have the pasta. <laughs> And just put it down, you know, whatever. And yeah. and these people differ in all manners of life. I tell the story when we first lived together in Toronto, how she spent six months looking for the perfect chair, for a chair in a room. And it was a small apartment, so the chair is not, it, we needed a chair. And on the one hand, maximizers, not surprisingly, do, um, do very well in their choices. On the other hand, they're sometimes not as happy as the rest of us because they have to spend six months without a chair. And so, you know, the trick, by the way, to life is to be a minimizer married to a maximizer. Who then <laughs> chooses all the best things while you go in your, your sloppy minimizing ways. People differ in their personalities. People differ in their criminality. People differ, and it's a big one, how happy they are, which is a topic at the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I have to just say, I'm just sorry that I just totally missed that uh, <laughs> that, that joke. I just I totally totally missed where it was going. But also, congratulations on 
on your marriage. Uh, we should just well, thank <laughs> you. It was a, it was a, a, Say that uh, on the air. I think nine months ago we got we got married. God, fantastic. Can just kind of this uh, language thing? You, you, we were talking a little bit about Noam Chomsky. Uh, you mentioned Lila Gleitman, who is a, we're huge fans of Lila's work. Oh, Lila's uh, Lila's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, actually worked very, very hard to get an interviewer with her before she passed away and missed the window. But when I was reading through that, it reminded me a little bit of like this, again, thinking about language specifically, it reminded me of the Yogi Berra quote about principle and practice. Are you familiar with this? Where he says, no. in, in principle, you know, principle and practice are very much the same, but in practice, they're very different. <laughs> of, of course. <laughs> but you talk about uh, infinite and finite. Is, is language infinite in, in principle, but finite in practice? Yeah, I, I think that's the right way to look at it. I know there's some sort of skeptical scientists who don't like to think of it that way, but language is infinite in principle in that we could always construct a longer sentence. You come to me with what you think is the longest sentence in the world, and um, and then I add in front of it, um, <laughs> this guy told me, and now it's bigger. <laughs> and, and there's no rule stomping. And that says something yeah. interesting about you had this system in the head that uses rules, recursion, that could generate an infinity of sentences. Numbers, similarly finite. You know, you have your nine-year-old very excited, and I've, I've talked to kids, that I have, I've discovered the biggest number. And then you say, we could add a, a, a million to the beginning of it. You get, wow. And then there's often this epiphany. This never stops. So yeah. it's, it's this astonishing thing about, about the powers of the mind that we use infinite systems in, in the head. But of course, we're finite beings. There, there's certainly a longest sentence I'm ever going to be able to say before I die. <laughs> life is life is short. A longest number I could ever recount. So, so this is the way Chomsky talks about Chomsky. Chomsky talks about competence, which is in some way the capacities that you that language actually bestows you in an abstract way, versus performance, which is what you can do with the language. Competence is infinite. Performance is, is incredibly finite. You have a chapter in the book called A Good Life, which is fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. So what is the secret to a good life? What, what does the research <laughs> show? I, I, we have the psychological answer here to a good life. What is it? <laughs> so so part of the answer is I can tell you because it doesn't. It, the answer to what a good life is falls outside the scope of psychology. Because it ends up being sort of a moral and, and philosophical question. If, if, if you say, if one of you says, a good life is a life of pleasure. Yeah. Just pure pleasure. No pain, pleasure. Another one says, no, a good life is a life of doing good things, helping out others. And then a third person says, a good life is a life of struggle, long, meaningful activities. It's not for me as a psychologist to say, oh, I'm going to run an experiment and say which one of you is right. This is a question that doesn't that that goes outside experiments. Not everything is a science. What psychology can tell you is that if you want to maximize certain things, you've decided to maximize certain things, here's how to get there, just through experiment. So a lot of people, fairly enough, want to be happy. Yeah. And happiness is different meanings, but roughly they want to have a good time. They want to look back and say, I'm living a happy life. And we know some things that contribute to happiness. Some things are not surprising. Money contributes to happiness. I used to give lectures a long time ago. I'm embarrassed where I said it, it wasn't that connected because that's what people were telling me. But of course, money makes you happy because money buys you healthcare, safety for your children, a roof over your head, good food, travel, security. Are at a certain point, there's diminishing returns. Yeah, it's not mm -hmm. clear you could buy much more of two million than one million. In, in, in a way, it don't mat matter, but money matters. What matters more is social connectedness. Yeah. Friends, family, people who love you, people who you love. Loneliness is horrible. Loneliness is, is the sa savage effects on your mind and your body. You know, what, recent science paper estimated that loneliness has causes more harm to the body than obesity and smoking. <sighs> it's just, and, and to the soul, it's, it's ravaging. But you already knew that. Yeah. Some countries are happier than others. This in turn is related to, um, to money and social connections and so on. But there are some surprises. I'll tell you one surprise, which, which as I get older, I like more and more. You ask people, 
what's the relation between happiness and, and getting old? And they'll often tell you, you, you know, you get happy, you get old, you know, your 20s and your 30s, you're really happy. Then you just, you just decline. As you get older and older, you get weaker, you get more sick, you get more so, less social status. Turns out that's totally wrong. Yeah. The evidence suggests that with age, happiness is a U-shaped curve. Pretty much on average, people differ, but on average, people are pretty happy in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Then it starts to dip. And the saddest part of life for most people, many people at least, is mid-50s. Then it goes up, 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 up. Until for many people, not all, but many, the happiest times in lives are in their 80s. And it's only up until the point when there's serious health problems that the happiness starts to drop. But old age is really freaking happy on average. <laughs> and, it's kind of, and it's kind of a mystery. It's, it's, not, it's not what you would predict on first principles. Yeah. Your old age, your body's not doing too well. Yeah. Maybe it's not doing too well in some ways that cause you discomfort and pain, yeah. you know. You have to go to the bathroom seven times a night. Your foot hurts when you walk. You know, your, your, your social status has dropped. You know, you're walking down the streets and attractive people don't kind of eye you over and everything anymore. <laughs> uh, you become a little bit invisible to people. You end up, you go into too many rooms where you're the oldest person in the room. That should hurt too. Yeah. Strangely, it doesn't. And, and one theory is that you hit a certain point in life, you start seeking out other goods. Goods that go beyond status, that go beyond money, that go beyond on, on sexual conquest, but goods that involve loving family relationships, satisfaction that people around you are doing well, the ability to support other people's lives, you know, abilities to, to, to get good at different things in a sort of different way than you did when you were young. Yeah. So I find so that kind of cool. That, that is that very is. cool. So, so, Tim, you got that going for you, you know, so there you go. You're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> Being the it oldest could guy be in the room, that, 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 we're, that, that we're all getting old. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sitting there going, all right, I'm in my mid-50s right now, so this is my low point. All this right. is your uh, low point. You're, you're at the, I'm, I'm, you're like, at the I'm just I'm just kind of crawling out. <laughs> you're a little bit happier each day. I, I got the graph on my wall. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go <laughs> Oh, uh, well, it's good to know it, it goes up. I mean, I'm actually feeling like I'm pretty happy. So I, I'm going, going, all right, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to my next couple decades here. So there you go. That's good. Paul, I, I know Tim is itching to get to some music questions. So I'm going to I'm gonna preclude that, though, with one last question, because I thought it was really interesting. And this was a term I hadn't heard before um, from the book. You, you write about a condition identified as hypophobia, the lack of fear. Is that? A, yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, you know, so it's be prominent in, in stunt doubles, professionals like that. And then you also mentioned a little bit about politics. And so uh, bringing up a, a component of modern day life here, is, is, is it similar to like feeling of shame and not having shame? Like in a world of George, George Santos and Donald Trump, uh, are we seeing more people with this hypophobia kind of lack of any sense of shame in, in their, their beliefs? It's interesting. We talked at the very beginning about the right way to think about emotions. Yeah. And how to think about emotions. And some people hear words like anxiety, fear, and they said, oh my God, they're terrible. Yeah. But the evolutionary psychologist, Randolph Nessie, points out that we don't only see it this way, but too little anxiety and fear can be just as bad. He said, people with anxiety and fear too much. They tend to be in psychiatrist's office and clinics. People of too little anxiety and fear, they tend to be in uh, jails and morgues. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like fun to be fearless, walking through the most dangerous neighbors, not feeling afraid at all. But okay. until, you're, until something happens, you realize, I should have been a bit more afraid. Yeah. There was a big talk, a big presentation, and I prepped my ass off because I was really anxious about it. You didn't do any of it because you're cool as a cucumber. But then you maybe on stage you think maybe I should have done a bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't. I worry about my kids a lot and take care of them. You don't worry about them a lot, but maybe you're worrying too little and 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 things go bad. So that that's the story. Yeah. And I that the point is there's a right degree of calibration when it comes to political leaders and you know charismatic leaders, gurus, and everything. They do seem to be wired up more than the rest of us, and. And a lot of them are, um, I think, fairly low anxiety, 
fairly low fear, fairly low uh, conscientiousness. And I think they tend to lead high variance lives where mm. if done correctly, if the gods smile on them, they could end up becoming presidents, becoming dictators. They could end up internet gurus, people of, of great power because of their traits. But they also become fairly more likely to end up in prison, yeah. end up deep and destitute failures. They tend to get into a lot of trouble. And, and we have a kind of survivorship bias yeah. thing where you say, oh, look at this guy. Look at that. Look at he's president now. He's so great. And not realizing that he came this close to, to, to ending up his life in federal prison yeah. in this way. And so, um, so some of us uh, play it a bit more safe. <laughs> yeah. I love this discussion, Paul. This is this is actually so much fun for us, and it is that point in time when I need to start talking a little bit about music. I need to ask you about about your musical preferences when it would come to your imaginary one year on a desert island. Let's say you get exiled to a desert island. It's a, let's say it's a pleasant exile, not an unpleasant exile. Uh, and you've got a year on that desert island, uh, and you can only take two musical artists' catalogs with you. You can take the whole catalog. You don't have to, you know, it's not one song. But what two musicians, what two musical artists would you take with you? You know, you warned me about the Coke versus Pepsi question. <laughs> <laughs> I you really, forgot I, about this from our first I round. I forgot about this yeah. one. And I remember I did so badly because... I totally failed to think of anybody who's a musician, which is very unusual. Sorry, this is not it's not intended to be a stump that you know. I know because, because, because um because most people most people do do fine on this. But I listen to a lot of music. But typically I listen to a lot of music because when I'm working, I have music in the background. And what I have is classical oh. covers of popular songs. A friend introduced me to something called lo-fi, yeah. which is another way to sort of transform music. I listen yeah. to um, soundtracks of video games. I listen to soundtracks of movies and TV shows I like. I just watched The White Lotus season two and they have a beautiful soundtrack. I listen to that. Yeah. So I'm listening yeah. to music without words. i getting a real pleasure from it, but not, um, but not, not preaching as music, but as background. So mm -hmm. if, if it was a matter of being on an island, but I have my laptop there and a good screen, I would bring more of that. I'd bring like, you know, violin string quartet, all that are covers and stuff like that. More in the spirit of what you're asking, and this is really going to age me, um, I'd be going for, for uh, musicians like, um, like Elton John and David Bowie. I just, took, I just took my wife for her birthday to Elton John's uh, last concert. In oh. And I know these guys always say it's her last concert, but, uh, but, that, was, <laughs> yeah. that, but that, that was really nice. This, I this like, might um, be it for Elton. Yeah. The I last, I, last, I, last, 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 last concert. We'll see. We'll see. Um, she has a birthday next year, and we'll, you know, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> but, um, I, I like musicians like Tracy Chap Chapman and Joan Armitrading, Suzanne yeah. Vega. I don't even mm. know what category they fall into, but I find myself just basically listening to them. So I think I'm aging myself in a certain a certain way, but that's that's fine. You, you no, fit right that, in with Tim and all of his musical preferences. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah, and and it, and it fits fits perfectly with all that research, you know, that says that that we we kind of lock into our favorite music sometime for boys between like 13 and 16. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so, so for me, another answer would just be a lot of classic rock. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I want to spend my time on an island with like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. I think for a while I'm going to get a little bit, bit <laughs> sick of it. But yeah, I love Pink Floyd, but holy cow, if I had a whole year of Pink Floyd, I'd just kill myself. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. you wouldn't um, want to grow older to that happiness. There you go. So. <laughs> no, my happiness <laughs> would stay at the bottom and kind of just hang there. Paul uh, Bloom, it is. Always a pleasure to see you. And today was just fantastic. We thank you for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves again. Thank you so much for having me on. Have me back. This was tons of fun. Welcome to the Grooving Session, where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from part two of our discussion with Paul, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our 
psychology brain. I don't know. That was a bad. Oh, that, no, that was do that again. You can do oh, so much better. And than groove that. on <laughs> whatever else comes into our. Oh, come psych on. Psych brain. I am. I am. So. All right. So think Good about life. this. Good life. Um, how, how about uh, oh, you? You do it, Mister. You do it, Mister Hulhan. You selfish come up versus with altruistic. The whatever comes into our nature versus nurture. Oh, it, it's uh, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Three hundred and fifty some episodes later, and I I'm still struggling with how this all happens. But you know, we got it. So. Hopefully you have listened to both episodes, um, but if not, if you just listened to part two, that's fine as well. I think yep. what we're going to talk about here, Tim, I, I just found it fascinating, first off, that, all right, this was going to be an easy book for him to write. I love this idea. Oh, I'm just mm-hmm. going to take this class that I have, transcribe the notes, edit it a little bit, and just put it out there for everybody Bottle of bing, bottle of boom, book on the way. <laughs> Not. Kind of like Not. us. Kind of like the book that we've been writing for four years. Like, oh, this is easy. We got all this great content and we're just going to take it and good idea and boom, bang, it's done. Oh, it's been four years a, and we. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, aside from, planning fallacy aside, <laughs> I take I take some solace in a conversation that Dave Letterman had with uh, Bono and the edge recently. And Letterman said, you know, you've been sitting on this one song for 10 years. Why haven't you just finished it? Cause it's a really, cause, cause he, uh, Bono and the edge play it for Letterman. And Bono just says, sometimes it just takes time. Sometimes it just, it, it's where we are in our lives that actually helps contribute to is something finished because uh-huh. we have a perspective. And I think that, Paul didn't say that specifically, but it kind of felt like he just needed time to kind of work through it. And then, of course, you know what he writes four hundred thousand words, and you know to condense it down to forty thousand. He didn't say that either, but um, but it sounded like he had a major, you know, contraction in editing to get it down to something that was more manageable. Well, and I what's also that. what's also interesting in this is just this idea that the content within the class has to be truncated because of the dynamics of the class. You have an hour-long yeah. lecture and you have to put things in and you have 12 of those or however many of those 16 that you have throughout the semester. And the idea that this is much broader and he can go deeper in this, which he did, which I find, which is really yeah. rewarding. So um, fantastic stuff on that. So where do you want to start? Where do you want to start on part two, Mr. Hulahan? <laughs> Well, like my favorite part of the conversation was nature versus nurture. Oh, of course it was. Because <laughs> you asked the question. All yeah, right. But it's and it's also that that philosophical side. And you and I have talked about how I tend to lead toward the philosophical, not quite as much as you do, but you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stop, reverse that, and then go, yeah, you do it like way more than me. You like the philosophical question, that idea of nature versus nurture. Do we have free will? You know, so, all right. Yeah. After this conversation, is the nature versus nurture debate settled in your mind? (laughs) Done. Yeah. Wrapped up, put a bow on it, put it on. No. Oh, oh, man. I thought you were being seriously there. No, no. no. I rather like the gray area, right? You know, right now, uh, because where I'm at right now is in in the middling part of thinking that there are nature things that influence us and there are nurture things that influence us. Well, isn't that the, I mean, isn't that settled? I mean, this is the part that I think is settled is that it isn't either or. It's not. Uh, well, oh, that, yeah. Okay. I'm settled on that. I mean, so if someone claims, no, 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 we're born this way and that's it. Who was it? John Locke was like, you know, you can't be the same person that you were 10 years ago because A, you can't remember it. And by the way, you really were a different person because of the environment, things like that. I Can't step into it, the same stream twice, right? You yeah. can't. Exactly. So, uh, okay. Uh, that context matters. It does. I'm I still deeply believe that to what degree nature 
influences us versus versus nurture influencing us, I think is, uh, I don't feel like there's a conclusion on that. And that's where I'm in the middling areas. Like, oh, okay. I'd like to, I'd like to feel more settled on what really, what aspects can I sort of count on? Well, this is just me yeah. because when I get aggravated at somebody cutting me off, you know, on, on the, you know, driving down the freeway, can I just write that up to, well, I'm just, it just pissed me off. And so, you know, I have every right to, you know, do whatever I do. Yeah. Or is that like, that's a result of culture and family and how I grew up and how I perceive the world. And yeah. I can change that. Well, cutting people off in, in freeway is just a nature thing because everybody gets pissed at that. <laughs> so that's a universal. It's interesting. I, I always go back to one of your and my favorite books, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. And oh when gosh, he talks yeah. about this, the biological component of this and goes back and says, look, our behavior is driven by choices our ancestors made right. millennial ago. And then it gets into, you know, all the way up to our grandparents and our parents. And then it gets into the genes that we have. And then it gets to the the womb and how, you know, the the what's going on in the environment uh, around your mother when your embryo is growing within the womb and then different genes get expressed. And then upon birth and then the social component of everything that you're doing and even some of the environmental factors that, again, influence the genes. So genes have an influence, but they can be expressed or not expressed because of environmental or social factors. Exactly. And so, yep. yeah, there's influence, but then there's, you know, so again, there it's not an either or, and it's not even this, they play off of each other and they build. So if you have a certain gene and you encounter a certain social environment, that means one thing for you versus me with a different genetic makeup and the same social mm -hmm. environment, I might respond differently. But I could be different because of how my mother, you know, what she was smoking in the womb versus not. And, you know, all of those factors. And again, yeah, I don't think that part has been settled. Yeah. So a shout out to Sapolsky's book. Oh, my God. Um, that's great uh, book. It's, it's fantastic. And just to to continue down that road. Sapolsky also gets into the so we've got all, millennium ahead of where we where we are at this moment uh, to you know a dozen uh, hundreds of years generations to uh, just before we were born to years before today to months oh, yes. before today to hours before today to moments before what's happening right now and I mean he makes a compelling case he he absolutely makes a compelling case that all of these things are contriving you know to work you know or conspiring to to work a, a sort of with us and against us at the same time yeah. you know basically and okay. again well, i'm i am waiting for his next book um the one that's supposed to be about free will that well he uh, just needs to finish it you know well that's, he that's, says that's you know hopefully he'll he'll interview have an interview with us once he finishes it so he's 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 bowed out a couple times because he's too busy. It's not done, um, That's right. but uh, That's we'll right. keep we'll keep working. Anybody that knows him, please tell him we really want to interview him, and it'll be a fun break. It'll give his mind. There's there's research that shows you need to sometimes take a break from things, and so he can take a break <laughs> with us, and then he can get back to writing his book and actually probably be more productive. Okay, back to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Back to our super cool conversation about, uh, again, just, I don't think there's anything else to say on nature versus nurture. Uh, for me, I'm still exploring the balance of the two, right? It's both. Yeah. Uh, uh, agreed. But I'm still exploring the balance and w what parts of my life am I just going to write off and say, that's my damn genes versus no, 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 this is environmental. I can change this. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of part of it. Okay. Kurt, what really struck you in our conversation with Paul? Can I say two things? You can, yeah, you can say two things. Okay, so I'm going to first, I'm gonna, let me go first. Finest instincts. Our finest instincts can't happen without the basis of our instincts. You know, this, this idea that we are good and positive versus negative. Uh, you know, this idea that we're selfish creatures um, and yet, by we're also really good creatures, you know? And that part, I think, is really 
fascinating to me. Duly noted. Let's just let's just say that duly noted. Um, it is it is pretty great actually. What was your number two thing? We're not going to talk about that. They're just like. Bowing that off. All right, fine, <laughs> fine. We'll get into the, the stuff. So again, you talk, we talked earlier, you're this philosophical, like this big picture thing. I like these, like, you know, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And this idea of the happiness or the good life that we have. And I love this idea that, hey, there are certain things that we can do that research has shown, that psychology has shown. We can't necessarily Psychology can't define what a good life is, right? That's outside of the scope of psychology, as Paul says. But if you want certain things, here's how you might get them. And some of those happiness aspects, right? This idea of contentment and hedonic aspects that, all right, money matters. You know, the more money we have, the happier we are. But similar to our conversation with Eric Eric Anger, right? This idea that there's diminishing returns on money that- Ten thousand dollars for somebody making forty thousand can make a big impact on their life. Big impact. Yeah, Ten thousand dollars for somebody making two million dollars is like yeah, I I lose that on you know and in my laundry right. <laughs> so uh, that's a weird idea. <laughs> don't you just leave that you know ten thousand dollars in your pocket as you go through the laundry and then you just lose it all and change. That's a fantastic <laughs> image. Okay, but the the piece that. Again, research is showing that social connectedness, this idea that social connections and feeling this social bond with others is really key to our overall life satisfaction. I'm glad you focus on that because I think we miss out on that. It, It certainly came to light during the pandemic uh, when people are working at home, when they're quarantined, and sort of the, the stress that came about because of that, it became abundantly obvious that uh, the social nature of our of our humanness is uh, is critical. And I think that this actually does play into the discussion about uh, mental illness and about the future of of the, uh, the of the field. That the social connectedness. I don't think it's been really fully explored. I think that there's more opportunity for us to study the impacts of what it means to actually be socially connected to people in real ways, not just social media, not not these artificial ways, right? Yeah. Social media. We got to try to get Robert Waldinger, you know, from the Harvard Life Lesson. He he did the TED Talk and wrote the, you know, looked at all that research from the Harvard you know, study the longest running social psychology um, study from the started in the thirties and is now still going. Um, But we need to get him on the, on the thing to study this. But I think it's really interesting. All, you know, this, the, the danger of loneliness that Paul talks about the, you know, and how that leads into all of these things, as you mentioned, and mental illness and all that are fantastic. But also what was really interesting is the fact that as we get older, we become happier and that I'm at the low spot, supposedly, on the yes. life continuum. And so my life yeah. is only going to get better from here. Now, you're already experiencing that betterness. You're Because you're am. older than me, just making pointing that out for our listeners in case they don't know. You know. Well, older and, and more mature. And, and wiser. Not better lo- you're, you are yeah. definitely wiser. Yeah. But not better looking. So, <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> so I got that going for me, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And so again, although I will have to say, you talked about like maybe some of the social media stuff and loneliness. I think, you know, if you, if you had conversations with us listeners at, on, through social media and talking about these topics, that would assuage some of that loneliness. Well, and this is the other, I'm sorry, I'm I'm being kind of facetious there, but actually not because one of the things that we do know from some of the more recent research is it's not just those deep connections that we need. We need those peripheral connections that the more that we talk to the barista, uh, the more that we talk as we've we've had conversations like the people on the train that we're, we're riding into work with, the people on the airplane next to us, those actually add to our general benefit and those conversations that you have on social media, the realness of those, as long as they're not, you know, the, the false kind, but, you know, getting into real components can add to that, right? We've made friends with Christian Hunt and others, you know, that have been purely virtual up until we get to meet them. And those add to 
the well-being that we have throughout our, our, our lives. You know, Jess Groom, you know, all sorts of um, people that we've had and built friendships up that we can say we've built friendships up yeah. over social media. So. Fadi, Fadi Maki, how about how about that? Alison uh, Zelkowitz. You, know, the, the, you know, people we've interviewed we, on the on the show, many of them were friends because of social media and and the connections we had. Yeah. We finally get to meet them and it's it's kind of explosive. It's kind of just this really wonderful emotional payoff yeah. to say, oh, this is what it's like to be with you in person. How yeah. fun is that? Yeah. yeah. Everybody except for Christian Hunt has been amazing. It's been just fantastic. <laughs> and then, you know, that's kind of a letdown but, but for Christian. But sorry, Christian, just joking. You know that. Everybody else would just know he's fantastic. Blew me away. Blew me away when we got to meet him he, in person. He's so. so damn smart and so fun. Okay. All right. All right. I, All right. I so that wraps up say. part two of our two-part episode with Paul Bloom. So make sure that you tune in next week to hear even more great insights on behavioral science from some other fascinating guests that we will have Ooh, on. Yes. Yeah. And be and Groovers, so be social and increase your happiness by joining us in the conversation. Please. I mean, Kurt really teed up a really great idea here. So it can be around this episode or any other ideas you've got about behavioral science. Follow us on Twitter. I mean, again, we're not in it for fortune. We're in it for fame. <laughs> fame and connection. Not even fame. We're in it to we're have, not even know, it build connections and to, to share the share the we insights do. and to find people who are interested in this so that we can have those conversations. I mean, we started this up as a meetup to have those connections, connections. that networking right. piece to say, what do you yep. think? How are you using this? What Does this make sense to you? Oh, get, help me understand this. And from your perspective, those are the types of conversations that we want to have. And we know that you, as a listener, you're a bold person. You are a commenter. You're a social person. You are a socializer. How, how else can I verbalize? Make You're this trying verbing? to make this concrete. I'm, I can tell. We, you know. I am. And, and just, you can do it. You can be the commenter. You are the commenter, the socializer, the idea generator. Be that with us. Be that. Yeah. Share that with share that with us and, and the community on Twitter. Yeah. So with that, go out this week, find some happiness by connecting with us on social media and holding a conversation and finding your groove.